Chapter Twenty Three of *The Hawk of Egypt* by Joan Conquest, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter Twenty Three, the thorns which I have reaped are of the tree I planted; they have torn me, and I bleed. I should have known what fruit would spring from such a seed. Byron. Olivia, Duchess of Longacres, stood on the balcony of the hotel, looking down at the cortege which had escorted the wife of the Sheikh el Umbar from the house and Mahaba, some way out in the desert, and which was making its way as best it could through the tortuous, narrow, unpaved streets of the Kergug town. The white and only wife of the great Arab travelled and ran. Two outriders with modern rifles slung across the shoulder and brandishing throwing spears caused consternation amongst the spectators as at a word or touch of the unspurred foot they made their magnificent horses rear and back and plunge. One trick or feat had caused the heavens to be rent with screams of pure joy and shouts of Wahale el Asim, Masha Allah, and other references to the might and glory of the Almighty. You do not often see this feat of strength and dexterity, and when you do, it brings your heart almost out of your body, and has an exhibition of tent pegging simply beaten to a frazzle. A spectator of the tender age of three, clothed as it was a day of festival in tarbouche and voluminous robe girt about him with a cummerbund, on ordinary days he would have been clothed in nature and girt in dirt, toddled straight into the middle of a square, just as the outriders charged across it. There was no room for them to turn, so packed were the places where the sidewalk should have been, neither was there time in which to rein in their horses. Women shrieked and beat their breasts, men looked on at the inevitable tragedy with the composure of the sterner sex. The babes stood stock still, and Yusuf, the outrider, bending low on his saddle, drove straight down upon it, gathered the back part of the cummerbund and some folds of the voluminous skirt upon the point of his spear, and lifting the mite, amidst yells and shouts and wild clamour, carried him at spear length and top speed safely across the square. Where the real danger comes is in judging the exact amount of stuff to gather on the spearhead. An inch or two too much, and you may get a part of the kitty's little back. An inch or two too little, and when you have him high in the air, you may cut through the cloth and cause said kitty to make a hasty descent to terra firma. Anyway, the child was safely restored to its fond mother, who simultaneously smacked it and stuffed its mouth with fly-brown sweetmeats, and became the hero for the latter part of the day. The real cortege was headed by camels bearing gifts from the house El Umbar to the great white woman who stood, on the balcony, in a grey silk taffeta dress, shawl of priceless lace on her head, and a grey parrot upon her shoulder. Silks, jewels, sweetmeats, bibelots in ivory and precious metal, dates, coffee and berries, a monkey and a bushel of wheat, were amongst the gifts carried by the camels, who grumbled and rumbled as they stalked, with swaying gait and contemptuous, half-closed eyes. Next came the armed escort, mounted on horses, with modern rifles slung and cummerbunds stuck full of the most atrocious-looking knives. They scowled at every one, but as they passed under the balcony each one drew his knife and rattled it against that of his neighbour, so that the weapons made a glittering arch in the light of the setting sun, as salutation to the old white woman who was of their mistress's race. Came Mustafa, the Ethiopian, into whose care the sheikh had given his wife all those years ago, when they had ridden out of the desert up to his dwelling amidst the talik palms of the flat oasis. He was on foot, not that he had done the entire journey in like manner, and held the golden chain of the magnificent camel upon which his mistress rode. 
She rode in a palaquin of ivory with curtains of rose satin embroidered in precious stones. On either side, also on camels, rode two slaves who waved huge circular fans on long staffs to cool the air about this woman who was so beloved throughout the land for her good deeds and loving, helpful hand. She was in silk robes of rose covered in a satin cloak of deeper shade. She was closely veiled as becomes the wife of a Mohammedan, and wore no jewels save a rope of pearls, and her steady, wonderful blue eyes, which were just twin heavens of happiness, shone with delight as she looked up at the old woman who had known her as a girl, with her hair hanging in two great plates. She put both hands to her forehead and spread them out in the beautiful eastern gesture of welcome, then bowed to her knees as she passed. Then turning, she pulled her yashmuk a little to one side. Petit mamma, she cried, welcome, petit mamma, and blew her a kiss from the tips of her rosy fingers. Arrived at the entrance, the armed escort made a circle round her with drawn knives. Her camel knelt, a Persian carpet was laid across the quasi-clean stones. Then Mustafa the Ethiopian made a sign, upon which Amina, the little hunchback woman who loved her mistress more than her life, and who had been transported with joy when she had laid the first-born son in the mother's arms, came running swiftly. Mustafa and Amina lived one long life of secret feud. They fought like cat and dog, as to who could do the most in their mistress's service. They stood shoulder to shoulder and fought everybody else in the same good cause, and the huge man scowled fiercely as the deformed little woman arranged the flowing robes and walked up the Persian carpet behind the wife of the great sheikh. "'Well, I never,' was Hobson's comment as she peeked from behind a door. "'Her grace must have made a mistake. You take that downstairs,' she added, coming boldly out into the landing to intercept the slave with the monkey. "'Downstairs,' and she pointed down to the entrance, surging with people, "'unless you want the place to be full of feathers and fur.' Jill stood in the doorway, looked across at her godmother, and made the beautiful gesture of salutation, then removed her veil, picked up her robes, and ran across the room right into the outstretched arms. Tears were very close as they laughed and held each other by the hand, but the laughter died away altogether as they sat in the failing shadows, the younger one with her head on the older one's lap. Two wise women, they were fighting for the happiness of the young, as the shadows fell and the stars came out, and faded before the light of the moon, as she trailed her silver garments across the heavens. Jill had risen once to her feet, in a moment of anger, and had gone out onto the balcony and stood looking down, smiling upon the crowd, composed chiefly of women, who had raised their hands and called down the blessings of Allah upon her. The steps were strewn with gifts, ranging from live goats to masses of sticky sweetmeats and glass beads. Mothers had brought their sickly babies and laid them down amongst the goats and beads, hoping that if even the shadow of the blessed woman were to fall upon them, they might be healed. Mustafa kept guard, hurling abuse at those who tarried, helping their departure by the aid of his foot. Hobson stood like a grim sentinel outside the sitting-room door. She had made tea under the greatest difficulty, the kettle of tepid water had been flung at the salaaming offender who had brought it, and had taken it in a blushing brick-red, when Jill had risen and kissed her on both cheeks. Dinner had been served, hardly tasted, and been sent away, and a whole tray of cups full of burnt milk showed the perturbation of the maid's mind, as she waited, and waited, for the sound of the little bell which summoned her to her grace's presence. 
"'You are a noble-looking woman, my child,' said the Duchess, as she keenly scrutinized the fair face, with great blue eyes and broad, humorous mouth, which, but for an added sincerity and dignity, was so very like the face of the girl, who had been left behind at Ismailia over twenty years ago, and who had journeyed into the desert with the Arabian sheikh, and had married him. "'I'm not surprised your husband adores you. Could he not have come with you? I have always longed to see him.' It seemed that the Sheikh Hamad had been invited to Baghdad, to some conference concerning the big Arabian question, but hoped to be able to greet her grace before her departure. In the meanwhile his dwellings, his servants, his horses, and everything he possessed were hers. "'And he means it, petite mamma. He loves making people happy. I—I I love him.' She paused for a moment, then looked straight into the stern old eyes. My love for my son is as great as my love for his father, and I would lay down my life for their happiness. There was no tenderness in the sad old eyes, and no lines of yielding in the stern old mouth, for although her heart was aching to say yes to the mother's insistent demands for her son's happiness, her common sense had turned her into a very rock of resistance. I am happy, radiantly happy. Jill, who was sitting on a stool at the old woman's feet, slipped to her knees and caught the wrinkled old hands in her own. So why should the little girl not be happy with my son, who is the finest man and dearest son ever born to women? Tell me, what difference is there? Why should my son be made unhappy? Tell me. She knew perfectly well. Her son's words on the roof of his dwelling under the stars were ringing in her ears, but she was hanging on to a very forlorn hope with both hands— tricking herself with the thought that, out of her love for her, the wise old woman might see things in a different light, and give her consent to the marriage, just because the man was her son. But the old woman caught the mother to her breast, and stroked the golden head, and kissed it with a world of pain in her sad eyes. Because, dear, and the words were very gentle, and the voice was very soft, just because, when we love, we think of ourselves only, and not of those to come. The old woman sighed as Jill raised her head sharply. "'Try to understand, little one. You, my dear, a white woman, married a pure-bred Arab. Ah, my dear, my dear, forgive me, your son is—' Jill sprang to her feet, and as she sprang, caught the rope of pearls upon the arm of the chair, breaking it and scattering the jewels to the four corners of the room. She flung out her hands, making the eastern sign to scare away evil spirits. "'The omen,' she whispered, "'the omen! A broken string of pearls means—' means death. "'Come, come, child,' said the old lady, sharply, to allay the unsightly terror in the other's face, and also because she believed in using an axe in felling a tree, repeating her last remark, "'You are suffering now through the selfishness of love. Women who marry without giving a thought to the result of the marriage, to the good or the harm it might bring to the children of that marriage, deserve to suffer. Marry the man if you really love him, and can help him by being his wife,' but let there be no children if there is anything in the union that might hurt them. She rose and crossed to the girl who was standing, staring into a corner of the room, with a world of horror in her eyes. She moved back as the old woman came towards her, holding out her hands as though to ward off some evil thing she saw in the shadows. "'I can't bear it,' she whispered. "'I can't bear it. I don't believe that anyone could think that of Hugh. Remember how loved he was at Harrow.' "'Ah, my dear, my dear, there was your great mistake.' "'You're wrong,' interrupted Jill harshly. "'You're hopelessly, cruelly wrong. "'He was idolized in England. "'He is loved out here. "'It was sheer spite on the part of the woman "'who told him that he was—was—' 
She pressed her hands over her mouth as she backed to the wall, then flung out her arms wide. Her face was dead white, her eyes blazing. She reminded the old woman of a tigress fighting for her cubs. She was beautiful beyond words in the tragedy of her motherhood. "'I don't believe you. I don't believe you. I—' "'You—' "'Listen, Jill,' the old woman's voice was as cold as ice as she watched the agony in the fair face. "'Dear heavens! She did not want to hurt. She wanted to give in and gather the child up in her arms, but she knew what was best. "'Your boy knows it, dear. He knows he is out of the running. Come over to me and listen whilst I tell you something.' She sat down and pulled the suffering child down beside her, who lay across the silken knees like the stricken mother across the knees of the wise Madonna, and made no sound or movement while she listened to the bitter words of the fortune-teller in the hotel garden at Cairo. A little silence fell, then, very gently, very tenderly, the old woman spoke. "'So you see, dear, until she is of age it will be my only duty to see that Damaris does not marry your son.' And Jill sprang to her feet and beat her hands together. "'And I,' she said, "'I will give my heart's blood to bring happiness to my son. Death alone shall—' She stopped and shivered as she glanced over her shoulder out into the night, then drew herself up with a surpassing dignity, and threw out her hands in the eastern gesture of resignation. "'You say, I will not. I say, I will. But it is God who decides.' With a little sobbing sigh she relinquished the unequal struggle, just as Hobson walked boldly into the room and stood inside the door, like a graven image of intense displeasure, when her mistress, unable to withstand the unspoken disapproval, consented, after a promise to Jill to have another long talk on the morrow, to go to bed. But there was to be no long talk, anyway, in the town of Kirga on the morrow. She lay in bed, propped by pillows against which, divested of its mask of red and white and blue, the dear old little face shone brown. A priceless bit of lace hid her own white locks, free for the night of the outrageous peruke which covered them by day, and which lay at the moment hidden in its box. A pair of crimson bed-slippers peeped from under the bed, another pair, absurdly small, outrageously high-heeled, buckled and crimson, made a splash of colour near the dressing-table. Her little hands were gently folded under the ruffles of priceless lace of her cashmere night-attire, as she lay quite still, trying to find a way out through the jungle of pain and grief, which seemed to spread round and about so many she loved, whilst Deco, puffed out with sleepiness, sat on the back of a chair, muttering incoherently to some fanciful image of his own weird brain. Hobson lay fast asleep in the next room, which had a communicating door with that of her mistress. Knowing nothing of nerves or of temperament, she had dropped asleep as soon as her head, with scanty locks tortured into chevet de frise of steel pins, had touched the pillow. Her strong hands were clenched on the frill of her stout calico nightdress. Her powerful face looked grim in the dim light of the moon, which, high in the heavens, flung a silver shaft through the open window, straight across the bed. There was absolutely no sound when, just as, so many miles away, Damaris made her passionate appeal, as she stood by the window, Hobson, dour, stolid, unimaginative, yet with a streak of Scotch blood in her veins, sat straight up in bed. Her eyes were wide open as she stared in front of her, then she passed her powerful hand over her grim face, and flung the bedclothes to one side. "'She's in trouble.' She spoke very clearly, sat for a moment thinking, then reached for a puce dressing-gown trimmed in mulberry. I'll go and tell her, and the infinite love in the pronoun was good to hear. She'll understand. 
The Duchess turned her head as the door opened slowly, but made no movement, although her heart suddenly quickened its beat. "'Yes,' she said, quietly. Hobson walked up to the bed and took one of the little old hands between her own powerful ones. "'Miss Damaris wants you, ma'am.' She spoke with certain conviction, then added, "'I've had a dream, ma'am. I saw nothing, but I heard Miss Damaris calling you. It woke me up. "'Moraine,' she said, "'I want you.' That was all. And she does, ma'am. She stood patting the hand of her mistress, who lay for a moment quite still. Then the faithful creature put a Shetland shawl round the bent shoulders, as the old lady sat straight up in bed. "'Would you please find Miss Jill's maid?' She used the term of the past, when Jill Carden had stayed at the castle, and had teased Hobson to death, and ask her to tell her mistress that I should be pleased if she could find it convenient to come to my room for a moment. Hobson found the aged body-servant lying asleep outside her mistress's door. Amina had learned a few words of English language in the last twenty years, but not enough to allow her to understand the terrifying person who stood over her, so that she shook her head whilst Hobson repeated her request over and over again, and ever more distinctly, until it ended at last in a veritable shout, which brought Jill, who had not slept for the ache in her mother heart, to the door. For a moment she stood, a beautiful picture, with big questioning eyes and two great plates of auburn hair hanging down over her satin wrap. Then she ran down the corridor and into her godmother's bedroom. In an hour those two forceful women had made their plans, acting without hesitation upon what might so easily have been the outcome of digestive trouble on Maria Hobson's part. Fully clothed, the two maids entered her grace's bedroom, the one carrying the tea-tray and the other a plate of biscuits. "'Amina,' said Jill, who was sitting on the end of the bed, "'please go and find Mustafa. Tell him to go to the station, find the station-master, and give him this letter. We want a special train as soon as possible. Mustafa is to bring me a written reply from the station-master.' She spoke with the authority of the eastern potentate, and took no notice of the maid when she knelt and kissed the hem of her satin wrap. "'Give me a cigarette, Hobson,' said her grace, in the depths of whose eyes twinkled the star of humour. "'We shall be starting as soon as possible, maybe directly after breakfast, for Luxor.' "'Yes, Your Grace, I will begin the packing,' said the imperturbable Hobson, placing the tray on the table beside the bed. "'And when you have had your tea, ma'am, will you try and get a little sleep? You can leave everything safely to me.' But special trains do not grow like blackberries upon a sideline in the east, so that many weary hours passed before they set out upon the return journey, which was rendered infinitely tedious by the never-ending mistakes which got them shunted into sidings to allow the ordinary trains to pass. End of chapter 23 Read by Sibella Denton For more information, please visit LibriVox.org